Thank you for listening to this message from Waynesboro Free Methodist Church. Our mission is to multiply faithful followers of Jesus Christ. We hope this message helps you along your journey. Good morning, church. So uh, go ahead and grab your Bibles and turn to 2 Corinthians 12. And as you're turning there, I want to say a few things. First, would somebody just go let the bird in? Somebody go over there, open the door. It didn't, I mean, Mark's commission says all creatures. If he wants to be in here, just let him in, okay? There he is. We want you in here. Just go the real way. Anyways, 2 Corinthians 12. As you're turning there, I also want to say thanks to Pastor Ethan. Um, Guys, I had a a privilege of of being able to go and um, spend some time in the mountains of North Carolina with some of my friends from college, some of my best buddies I haven't seen in years. So it was a good uh, rest for my soul. Um, At the same time, you guys got an incredible sermon uh, last week from Pastor Ethan. uh, When God seems to request too much. And, and I can tell you that I've been listening through that the, this whole week, and I've, I've had to go back and, and re-listen to things, because what I found was that as, as Ethan was preaching, the Lord was applying this kind of balm to my soul that was in pain, because I have been wrestling with some pain over the last few years about some of the things that the Lord has asked me to give up, um, moving away from family, moving away from friends, and and, and Jesus reminded me through Ethan's sermon last week that Jesus is worth it. And uh, so uh, if you didn't get to hear it, go check it out. Again, I'm telling you, somebody go open that door. Let the bird in, okay? And today we're going to be talking about when God seems uncooperative. When God seems uncooperative. Now, I can tell you, uh, I want to re- recall a time where that was the case for me. Uh, we had just graduated college, gotten married to the, what, be, be the bride of my life, the, the, um, the, the woman of my dreams. And, and uh, a few months later, we were, I was asked to pastor a church, uh, interim pastor a church. Uh, totally threw our plans off course. We were looking to go into the mission field, and, and then this happened. And, and, and there's a lot of context behind that, but I don't have time for it. But I was asked to be an interim pastor. And wh- how long do you think interim means? Who said forever? Because that's <laughs> it's pretty appropriate. So interim would be like maybe three, four months. Uh, it ended up being two years. So I, I ended up interim pastoring this church uh, in Lynchburg, Virginia for two years. And I was bivocational. I was working full-time at Liberty and, and, and that was 40 hours a week. And then so Saturdays was all my prep day for Sunday morning. So the only time that I really had off was Sunday afternoon. And I was physically, emotionally, and spiritually exhausted. I, I, had, I was just, I was worn out all over all of this. And, and, and I can tell you that while we were there, we saw some things happening. Like we saw some, some relationships grow. Uh, we entered a time of of pain uh, when I entered into the pastoral leadership and, and, and people healed from it, right? Like they healed from some of their sorrow and hurt that they had gotten at church. And, and, then, and then like we, we saw some things happening, but, but when you think about what church is and, and what's to be accomplished, um, we never really saw any of that, to be honest, right? So 
Caitlin and I would, would routinely pray every Saturday night heading into Sunday morning, and we'd pray things like, God, would you, would you save people? Would you increase the, the reach of our church that people in our community could hear the gospel and be saved or discipled? Um, we, we prayed that people's own relationships with God would grow. We prayed for, for people to be called to the church to partner in the ministry of the church. And those are all really good things, right? Like, I could probably point to you and say, hey, this is where we prayed from that, and this is where we prayed from this, Right? Those are all really good things, but none of them happened. In fact, the only things that I can recall that really happened during that time, apart from what I already shared, was one, my best friend who was the worship leader at the time, he left. And so I was left all alone in any kind of church leadership capacity. We had a couple a young couple come visit on a Sunday morning because they saw our website and they never came back. We, we, we kept watching the bank account get lower and lower and lower and lower. All to the point where, where it was Saturday night and we would just head into prayer with tears already on our face because we were so confused. We couldn't make sense of things. I mean, we'd go in to pray and I'd pray things like, God, I, God, I know that I'm asking for things that are biblical. I'm asking for things that you celebrate. So what's going on? Why, why aren't you giving us these things? You delight in these things. Why aren't you cooperating with what we're asking for? Why aren't you cooperating with the things that you say are good? What's going on? And that lasted for two years. Two years of confusion and exhaustion, all to the point where two years later, the church grew, it it flourished, and thousands of people started coming. No, actually, two years later, the Lord led us to close the church. So the first church that I pastor, I closed. Now, trust me, the church board knew that when they hired me, so whatever happens here is on them, okay? So, I mean, right now I'm kind of like one and one, if you want to say, because the last church didn't close. They're still existing. I share this story with you because this was probably the most confusing time in my life where we were looking at what God was loving and celebrating and commending and not seeing it anywhere in our church family. And I say that to tell you that like, there's times when I'm not okay either. There's times when I'm confused. And so I wanna ask you, are there, are there things that you're really confused about where, where you can see what God celebrates, you can see what he commends and you're praying for those things, and you're asking for those things and you're hoping for those things and nothing's coming. Areas where it seems like God's just not cooperating with you. Like for example, when your loved one's on the hospital bed and it's just not looking good at all and you're begging God for healing, which is a good grace and nothing's coming. 
Or, or, or what about when you, when you have a child, as a parent, you have a child who just totally walks away from the faith that you hoped to instill with them. They're totally rebelling. They want nothing to do with it. And you're pleading with the Lord for their salvation who desires all people to come to knowledge of, saving knowledge of Christ Jesus. And, and, and nothing's happening. He just keeps wandering off further and further away. Or what about when you've got this major life decision that you're having to make, it's gonna change everything about your life and you're begging God for just a hint of direction, for just some sort of clarity, like a, like a, like a voice in the wind crying out or a writing on the wall or a tornado of fire in the night leading you the way. And there's just silence from heaven. What about when God seems uncooperative? What fresh perspective do you and I need to infiltrate our souls, to lift us up out of our confusion and the chaos of our souls and set us on that solid rock of trust and faith? What fresh perspective do we need? As I can tell you that the Apostle Paul had something very similar happen in his own life which is actually in the passage that we're going to be looking at today. It's a story about how he begged the Lord for something, something good to change in his life, and nothing did, but instead he was given a perspective. He was given a promise that was enough for him to leave that interaction with the Lord and simply say, hey, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses and sufferings. Wouldn't we... Love to have that kind of faith, that kind of contentment that would be able to have storms billow in our lives and be able to say, no, I'm content with this. I will boast on the fact that I'm weak and this is happening right now. So what fresh perspective did Paul receive that empowered by God's grace, his faith to be unshakable? That's what we're going to look at today. So let me put some context on this passage because we're in, in 2 Corinthians 12 and we're going to be mainly focusing on verse 9, but I'm going to start reading in verse 6 around that. So in chapter 11, right before this, we, Paul calls a group of people these super apostles, right? They, they're, they're boasting about all their works and they come onto the scene in the city of Corinth and, and they're just totally discrediting Paul and all of his ministry and all of, and like they're distorting the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so the situation kind of demanded that Paul, though he didn't really want to, he called them out. He called them as imposters and he contrasted their doctrine with his, their character with his, and their labors with his own, which again is something he didn't really want to do, which is why you see him in 2 Corinthians eleven twenty three 23 saying like, hey, I'm talking like a madman. Like it is foolishness for me to be boasting about myself and that's not what I'm doing right now, but, but let me just show you. So Paul in defense of the gospel and sound doctrine, not in defense of himself, he, he begins to list out a lot of the sufferings that he endured for the gospel and for the church. And then, and then he states how he had received these amazing revelations from God, which is where we're at in, verse, in, in chapter 12. These amazing revelations, which would be very easy to say, hey, look at me. God speaks to me, not you. I got these really lofty visions. So he has these visions, which could be a temptation to pride. And that's where we pick up at the end of verse seven. You can see, especially because of the extraordinary revelations. Therefore, let's pick it up. 
so that I would not exalt myself, a thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan to torment me so that I would not exalt myself. Pause there for a second. All right? So if you're a type A kind of person and you like outlines, I've got an outline for you. And if you've got some Baptist background, I've got it in alliteration. So you're welcome. First is the problem, the purpose, the plea, and the perspective. If you didn't get that down, we're going through it. So just keep up, okay? First is the problem. Paul introduces us this problem, right? And the problem is ultimately like this suffering pain. He's suffering some kind of pain, but he gives a name to it. He gets something more specific than that. He says it's a thorn in the flesh. It's like this messenger of Satan that was given to him to torment him. Guys, when we talk about a thorn in the flesh, like we, we often picture like a rose bush thorn. And, and trust me, those things don't feel good, but we're not talking about like a little splinter in your foot. The Greek word for thorn here actually is a stake meant to execute criminals. It's this massive stake that was driven through criminals to execute them. So this is a major pain. This, is, this isn't something very light. Now, we don't know exactly what it is. We, we, we know it's painful. It's kind of like a stake that's hammered into the body. And we definitely know that it's like this messenger of Satan sent to harass him or torment him. So there's something demonic about it as well. Somebody, somebody, something demonic that's speaking words to Paul and they're tormenting him. Now, we could spend a lot of time trying to figure out what this could be, but the reality is I think the ambiguity here of what Paul's thorn is, allows us to place our own thorns with Paul's, allows us to identify ourselves with him a little bit more broadly. So let me just ask this, what would you say is a thorn in your flesh right now? What would you, I mean, if there's something that you could identify, something that's just constantly pressing in and causing all sorts of pain in your life right now, what would it be? And it might not be a fresh thorn like it just got in there. It could have been a thorn that's been digging deep for years. And all you've found is that it's infected your soul. It's festering. Can I just tell you first off, you're not alone. You've got an apostle of Jesus Christ with a thorn in his flesh as well. So Paul introduces the problem. It's this thorn in the flesh, this messenger of Satan. And then he takes us on to the purpose. Can you say the purpose with me? One, two, three. The purpose. So notice how he says that it was given to him. Woo! It was given to him. So if it was given, there was an intention, right? I don't accidentally give something to somebody. I intentionally give something to somebody. And in the same way, this was given to Paul. It had a purpose. And ironically enough, Paul knows what that purpose is. Why was it given to him? So that I would not exalt myself. This thorn in the flesh was given with the purpose of keeping Paul humble. In light of the great revelations that he had received so that Paul would not exalt himself. Now, let me just ask this simple question, and feel free to respond if you so choose. Does keeping somebody humble sound like a plan of Satan? 
Do you think Satan would really, oh man, I don't want you to think too much of yourself. I want you, I want you to think rightly about yourself. Humble yourself because you know I'm Satan. No. No, this does not sound like a, a ploy of Satan to keep Paul humble. If anything, Paul, like Satan would want to just, uh, no, you got, you got to be tripping over your own ego, right? Like I'd rather you be that. So he's going to put everything in the way to make us prideful. So here's what this means. It means that though the affliction of the thorn is Satan's, the purpose of the thorn was God's. Now that's some controversial stuff right there. Though the affliction of the thorn is Satan's, the purpose of this thorn was God's. God was using this painful weakness and suffering in Paul's life for Paul's holiness, for his good. Sound familiar? Right? You go back to what that Romans 8, 28, we probably have it on our coffee mugs and t-shirts, right? We know that God works all things together for good for those who are called according to his purpose, for those who love God and are called according to his purpose, right? So here's a question. Do you believe that yet? Because here's a great example of it. Guys, we, with our American dream Christianity, have chalked up the all things for good promise to be more about our comfort than our holiness. We, we've, we've, we've twisted it. We've made it, hey, it works all things together for good. And we think that means comfort. We think that means ease of life. But that's clearly not what's happening here. And Paul wasn't in America so sometimes, let me, let me actually, just let me ask this. With the, if you can examine the intentions of your heart, would you rather be kept humble or kept comfortable? Would you rather God be keeping you humble or keeping you comfortable? Because how you answer that question might reveal why there's some conflicting points in your will versus his. Guys, can we just... Can we throw away the idea that the good God wants to work in our lives is our comfort and our easy passing through this life into the next with as little pain as possible? Can we just trash that? Because I don't see that anywhere in scripture. I see it all around us. And I see it in the church, but I don't see it here. So can we just throw that idea away? Clearly, God is more concerned with keeping us from sin than he is in keeping us from suffering. Notice how that's uncomfortable and nobody said amen to that. Do, do, can we agree? I mean, it's clear. I mean, and, and we can see that all, all throughout scripture that clearly God is more concerned about keeping us from sin and keeping us in holiness than he is from keeping us from suffering. Can we, can we agree with that? I mean, so if you, if you couple this promise here, this text here with, with God's promise in Romans 8, 28, like that means that you can know beyond a shadow of a doubt that every ounce of suffering and pain 
caused by this fallen world is being redeemed for a very specific purpose God has for your life and joy and future glory. You can know beyond a shadow of a doubt that not a single point of your pain is wasted. God's not into doing that. When you're in Christ, all things work together for the good that God has for you. So we've gone through the problem. We've gone through the purpose. And Paul knows these things, but then we get to his plea. The plea. Look at verse 8. He says, concerning this, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it would leave me. Let's pause there. Now it could be Paul didn't really understand or grasp or fully appreciate what the thorn was doing or what God's purposes were for it. Or it could be he knew that full well and just needed relief. Either way, it's good. Either way, it's okay that he's asking. Paul prays three times that the thorn would be removed. I'm going to ask it again. Sound familiar? Matthew 26, 39. Jesus, just minutes before he's betrayed, is on his face begging the Lord, saying this, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. How many times did he pray that, church? How many times? Three times. So Jesus prays three times for his circumstances to change. Paul prays three times for his circumstances to change. Can I say something that might be a bit controversial and uncomfortable? Perhaps there's a time where in our relationship with Jesus, we need to stop praying for our circumstances to change and accept them as God's design for our lives. Oh boy. Perhaps there's a time, sooner or later, in our relationship with Jesus, where we need to stop praying for our circumstances to change and accept them as God's design for his good in our lives. Now, don't get me wrong. Yes, I totally believe. I totally believe uh, that we are to constantly beseech God's throne like the persistent widow does does in, in Luke 18. Like, I'm totally in agreement with that, and I believe we could continue to pray. But my concern is when we constantly keep praying over and over and over again, sometimes it's just our refusal to accept no as an answer from the God who uses words to speak life. So my concern would be more so about our heart. Sometimes it can just be a refusal. It can be prideful. When God clearly has shut the door and we're saying, no, I want it back open, God. Come on, man. Sometimes sooner or later, we should stop praying against our weakness or our suffering and accept it as God's design for our humility and for the glory of Christ. That's really hard. So Paul makes this plea, rightfully so, three times to the Lord. And guess what? God gives him an answer. 
Let's explore it in the negative first. Let's look at verse nine. It says, but God said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is perfected in weakness. Let's first note the negative. What's not given? Reprieve. What's the Lord's answer? Did Paul get what he wanted? Nope. Still got that thorn right there. Paul wanted the thorn God gone, and God said no. Paul had his desires and plans, and God's were different. Oh, but doesn't Psalm 37, 4 say that if you delight yourself in the Lord, he will give you the desires of our hearts? Mm. I mean, isn't like Paul the apostle of joy in the Lord? Because was he not just enjoying the Lord right there? In all honesty, why isn't God cooperating with Paul? We don't know. We know that there's a purpose in this and that the timing is perfect. God doesn't give him relief, though. Doesn't give him reprieve. What does he give him? Aha! The perspective. The perspective. There it is. He says, I'm not going to take my thorn away from you, but... My grace is sufficient for you. My grace is sufficient for you. Guys, God gave Paul this fresh perspective and it's rooted in this amazing promise. My grace is sufficient for you. Guys, there's a a commentary by Charles Hodge and in it he wrote that He said, these words should be engraved on the palm of every believer's hand. My grace is sufficient for you. One of my favorite favorite songs in college was by Shane and Shane. And the title of it was, my grace is sufficient. And the chorus, literally just saying that over and over again. My grace is sufficient. My grace is sufficient. But why is this such a major perspective? Why would this be the news that we need, the perspective that we need when God's not cooperating with our plans? Well, let's first understand grace. When we think about grace, we we often define it as what? Unmerited favor, right? Rightly so. Great definition, good category to have for the word grace. And it's, it's often in the sense that God graciously gives us the things that we don't deserve despite our failures or successes, and they, we typically orient his grace around our salvation, right? Around our forgiveness, our redemption, our, and, and rightly so. I mean, Ephesians 2, right, says it is by grace you have been saved. It says that twice, and it says that this is a gift of God, not by works. So there's a sense of grace. We have Romans 3.24, which says we are justified by his grace as a gift. Rightly so. Good. Good category. This is a major understanding of grace. But grace also has another category. There's another element to it. I want to show you it in in 1 Corinthians 15. There's a a few verses actually I want to show you. It says this, by the grace of God, this is Paul, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. So he says, I worked harder than any of them, any other believers, but it actually wasn't me working. It was God's grace that was working in me. Hmm. Okay, so it's this grace that makes Paul who he is. That has 
walked with him and worked with him and empowered him. We can also see it in 2 Corinthians 9, 8. It says, God is able to make every grace overflow to you so that in every way, always having everything you need, you may excel in every good work. Okay, wait, wait. So let's take a look at this. So, so every grace that we need so that we can do every good work that he has ordained for us ahead of time, as Ephesians 2.10 would say. So it's God's grace that enables and empowers us for any good work. So, so grace is not only a, a disposition or a quality or a nature or an inclination of God. It's an influence. It's like a, a force. It's a power or it's an acting of God that works in us to change our capacities for work and suffering and obedience. In other words, grace is God's energy empowering us for every godly work in everyday life. Can we read this together? One, two, three. Grace is God's energy empowering us for every godly work in everyday life. And that grace, God has given to you, purchased for us by the blood of the lamb. And that grace is what we need. Don't believe me? Let's, let's take a look at, at Titus 2. Verses 11 and 12, it says this, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. There's the first element or category of grace, but look at what else it does. For the grace of God has appeared, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. Guys, God's grace not only pardons us, it empowers us. It not only saves us, it sustains us. So God's grace is what trains us up. It's what instructs us. It's what gives us strength and power for godly lives. You thought you did that? Puh. It's God's grace. And it's that grace, that precious, tenacious grace that is sufficient, that is enough. In other words, nothing else is needed. What was given to you is all you really need. And that's not me saying it. That's the God who said, hey, I love you and I'm gonna make you and I'm gonna save you. That's what he says. Guys, God's grace never runs out and it never starts to lack the ability to energize godliness in our lives. So brothers and sisters, when, when God seems uncooperative, Right? When God isn't doing the things that you think he should be doing, when he's not taking away the things you think he should be taking away, guys, the fresh perspective that you and I desperately need is the exact same one that Paul received. God's grace is sufficient. Can we say that together, church? One, two, three. God's grace is sufficient. Do you believe it? Guys, God's grace is sufficient to empower you to suffer in a godly way to the glory of Jesus. Right? God's grace is sufficient for contentment in every season of life, whether it's mountaintop living or, or low valley suffering. God's grace is sufficient for you to still bear the fruits of love and joy, peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control in every season of life. Even in the face of great adversity and loss and confusion. 
So church, you have to believe this. When God doesn't do what you think you need, you already have all he knows you need. Process that again. When God doesn't do the things that you think you need, you already have all he knows that you need. Right, so Ephesians 1.3, I've been studying Ephesians 1 for several weeks now, and it's, it's Ephesians 1.3 says, God has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. That's past tense, that's already done. You've got every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places already in your account. So guys, I, I, I actually read a sermon by Charles Spurgeon in preparation for this. And I want to share some of his thoughts that I thought were really appropriate, and um, I'm going to contextualize them a little bit to our time. But one of the things that he says is that if God were to cooperate with our plans to remove every point of pain in our lives, every pain and suffering that we endure, if he were to do all of that, then how would you and I ever know how sufficient his grace really is were it not for the troubles and weaknesses and sorrows. How could we ever know how truly sufficient God's grace is if life is totally easy and you experience no pain in your life? How could we ever know? Guys, it'd be like, it'd be like having a, a, a Ford Mustang Shelby GT500 sitting in the garage and never taking it out for a ride. It'd be like owning a mansion on top of a mountain and never actually going to stay there. It'd be like us learning to sail on dry land but never going out to sea. Or it's like like us training for war and never seeing the battlefield. What's the point of grace if we never get the environments to experience it? How would we ever know truly how sufficient it is were it not for sorrow and suffering? Guys, this is a hard saying. But not only that, not only how are, how are we supposed to be able to know that this is true if it were not for our sorrows and troubles and sufferings, but how would they know that God's grace is sufficient? How how would people in the world ever be able to know that God's grace truly is sufficient for you were it not for troubles and hardships and heartbreak? So when missionaries, Jim Elliott, Nate Saint, Pete Fleming, Ed McCauley, and Roger Udarian entered into, got off the plane uh, right by that riverbank, to reach the Aka Indians or the Warani tribe because they were unreached. They never heard the gospel. And when the people came out and just speared them to death, leaving all of their wives widows, and Elizabeth Elliot and Rachel, Nate's sister, offered the tribe forgiveness and went and still lived among them, which so shocked the tribe that they knew they had an important message so that when the day came and they preached the gospel, 
Many of them were saved, including one of the murderers. Do you think that that was Elizabeth and Rachel's strength? Guys, that was God's grace that kept them there, that empowered them for forgiveness and empowered them to endure the sorrow and the loss of their husbands and brothers and kept them going on the trail to see this tribe come to follow Jesus. Hear the gospel and be saved. Guys, that is God's grace. How will the world ever know how truly God's grace is sufficient were it not for our pain and our testing the reality, as Joseph so rightly said, that God's grace truly is sufficient. So one of the things that Charles Spurgeon says at the end of his sermon, he said this, our infirmities become the black velvet on which the diamond of God's grace glitters all the more brightly. Now, if you're, if you're somebody who's not a follower of Jesus, and this is new to you, I'm t- this is not very attractive, is it? You're like, wait, so I, I don't get escape from pain. Why would I want this? Because you get the grace to sustain you through every pain. And this world and life are painful. And God's grace is sufficient. So can I, can I close out with a thought? What I'm telling you, what I believe God's sharing with us this morning, runs absolutely counter to popular culture today. It runs totally opposite from everything that we're told to do in our society and our culture, right? Guys, we as a culture, we value independence, right? That's one of the primary goals of parenthood. You've got to train up your kids so they can do this thing called adulting, which is just a millennial immature term for growing up. But we teach them independence, right? We look out at people in the world who don't require any, anything of their government or the people around them, and they say, man, they're independent. We celebrate that. When anybody comes dependent, they become a point of pain. Our culture does this, right? We value independence, and independence is almost a form of strength in our society. And here's how I think that influences. So that means when when suffering comes our way, and we have this American dream Christianity, and hardships prevail, and the storms just billow in, and God doesn't clear them up or calm the waters when we ask, our first inclination is to think about that independence. It's, it's to think that God's testing us and he's testing our resolve and our strength and our ability to endure to see if we can muscle up. And you know how I know we believe that? Because we come up with inappropriate phrases like, well, God won't ever give me anything more than I can't handle. I'm coming back to that because I just need to clarify this That's a really poor, that's not even scriptural. 
right? So it's a misinterpretation of 1 Corinthians 10, 13. 1 Corinthians 10, 13 says, God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide you a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. That's about temptation, not about suffering. Two different things. This does not mean that he won't give you more than you can handle in this life. Obviously, we see this here that Paul couldn't handle the truth. He couldn't handle this thorn in the flesh. God gave Paul something that he couldn't even bear. And this is, this is the father of the faith. He gave Paul something so painful that Paul cried out to God and begged for relief. Why? Why would God do that? Yes, to keep Paul humble, but to also have Paul fully rely on the grace that he said is sufficient. To fully rely on, to seek for, and to trust in God's grace as being sufficient for him. So I wanna just put this before you again. It's probably something a little bit controversial. The sorrows and sufferings that come into your life aren't designed to test your strength. They're not. They are meant to expose how weak you are and incapable and compel you to depend on Christ and his grace alone. That's why we suffer as Christians. I'm telling you, that runs totally counter to Christianity today in our popular culture. Guys, God's aim isn't at training us up to be independent. God's aim is not to say, hey, I, I want you to raise up so you don't need me anymore. <laughs> That's so silly. No. It's so that he, he's training us up to, to increase in our dependence on God's grace in every situation and circumstance in life. So one of the things I always find funny is that when, when people out in the world look in on Christianity, they criticize it and they say, oh, Christianity is just, it's just really a crutch for really weak people. No, 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 let's get something straight. It's a wheelchair for the disabled to carry them into eternity. Actually, no, better yet, it's a defibrillator for the dead who can't wake themselves up. And the gospel makes us alive and gives us the grace to carry us all the way into eternity because he will hold us fast. Guys, the whole of the Christian life from, from, from justification all the way to our glorification in eternity is by grace. So why would we ever think for a minute that somewhere in the middle it's, it becomes about our strength and our ability? We're not sanctified by our works. We're sanctified by faith through grace alone. So you and I, when God seems uncooperative, we must learn and train ourselves to be dependent upon God's grace because that's what he's already doing. So brothers and sisters, when, when God doesn't make sense, his grace is sufficient. So what I wanna exhort you to do as Hebrews 4 tells us to do, let us approach the throne of grace with boldness so that we may receive mercy and find grace 
to help us in time of need. Guys, it's God's grace that will help you and empower you, and it is all you need. It is enough for you, truly. It is enough for you when the doctor comes into the waiting room and just says, I'm sorry. God's grace is sufficient. It's enough for you when you're grieved yet again by a child who's in rebellion against God. God's grace is sufficient. So run to his presence. Ask for his grace. It really is enough. Guys, let's stand in prayer together. Lord Jesus, we come to you and, and we're just incredibly grateful that, that the purchase made with your blood on the cross didn't just simply secure forgiveness from sins. It secured for us everyday grace for everyday life in every circumstance that we encounter. God, you really, you really have set us up for success. You really have made it so that we can know you and walk with you and enjoy you even in the greatest pains in our life. So God, we confess that there are times where, where we want certain things to, to come about, certain things to change, certain things to be received. And we ask you for those things and, and you don't give them. God, would you just simply keep us humble enough to be able to say, your grace is sufficient. I'll trust you. God, please. And, and, and I don't know about everybody in here, but, but I know for me, and I, I pray this truly, God, that you would give those environments for us to really know how great your grace is and how sufficient it is for us. Because God, we wanna know you more. We wanna see greater sights of you that have yet to be seen in our, to, to our souls. Because God, you're, you're, you're literally the best and we don't want anything else. So would you unify our hearts in this and make this the reality of our convictions? We really love you, God. I pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me pray a prayer of benediction over you guys from 2 Timothy 2.1, which simply says this. Therefore, brothers and sisters, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Amen. Love you guys. Grace and peace to you. Lord willing, we'll see you next week. We hope this message helps you multiply faithful followers of Jesus Christ. For more information about our church, please visit waynesboroughfm.com.